This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to the program. Today, we welcome a guest that I've read about for many years, but only recently had the opportunity to meet. The incomparable David Verrill, who is, of course, Chairman Emeritus of the ACA, joins us on the show. In the past, we've been very fortunate to have both the current chairman, Christopher Mirabile, and Chair Emeritus John Houston on the program. Today, we can complete a great trifecta as we discuss public policy for angel investors with David. I need to say a special thanks to Paul Silva, Jay Leonard, Liz Roberts, and the rest of the Virtual Valley Mentors team for having me out to help judge their Accelerator Awards event this summer. At this event, I had a chance to meet David and trade notes on current issues in angel investing. Now, I've seen some of the best accelerators and biggest demo days across the country, but I must say the folks at VVM are doing something very special in Western Massachusetts. They run an effective and organized accelerator program open to startups anywhere in the country. And their award ceremony was attended by over 800 people, over 30 startups, 30 judges, and the accelerator awarded $250,000 in prize money to over 10 of those startups. It was a great event, great people, making a real impact to further innovation. Okay, with that, we are covering public policy issues for angels today, and we'll address questions including, David, can you talk about your experience at Hub Angels and how the group and investments are structured? Can you tell us the story of how you became involved in the Angel Capital Association and ultimately became chairman? Regarding the public policy discussion, can you start off by talking about why public policy issues are an important consideration for angel investors? Is there a way that you structure or categorize angel-related issues within the public policy spectrum? What are some of the current top priorities in public policy for the ACA? Late last year, Congress passed the PATH Act related to capital gains, and the SEC recommended tweaks to the accredited investor definition. Can you give us an overview of the updates on each of these issues? What terms and or classifications must there be at the time of an investment for a startup to be considered QSBS and for angels to get a capital gains tax exemption? How does the QSBS cap gains exemption work with convertible notes? And finally, we'll wrap up part one of the discussion by reviewing the HALOS Act, i.e. the Demo Days Bill that was passed by the House of Representatives on May 2nd. And we'll get David's thoughts on what it means and why it's so significant. All right, all that and more in part one of the interview with David Verrill of Hub Angels and the ACA. Today, David Verrill joins us from Boston. 
David is founder and managing director of the Hub Angels Investment Group, and he's one of the most well-regarded angels in the country as chairman emeritus of the Angel Capital Association. In addition to serving as executive director for MIT on their digital economy initiative, David also spends a great deal of time focusing on public policy issues for early stage investors. David, it was a pleasure to get a chance to meet you recently in Massachusetts, and I appreciate you making the time to come on the program. Happy to be here with you, Nick. Thanks. Yeah. So can you start out with uh, sort of your origin story and uh, how you became involved in startup <laughs> investing? Yeah, for sure. Uh, really uh, a story of happenstance, I guess, if you will. Uh, I uh, went to MIT for business school and ended up staying at MIT for a decade in basically in corporate fundraising and uh, left MIT to work with one of the actually one of the clients that I had. I got a, a feel for what big company uh, was like. I, I did sales and business development. And we were in a turnaround uh, situation with a small division of the company, ultimately was divested. And I find myself with a lot of time on my hands and connected with a former fundraising colleague. And we started uh, a little fundraising firm. And so one of the core abilities that, that I've used and leveraged over my angel career is is in fundraising. It's basically a sales opportunity. And in, in talking with a lot of people, many of them in the MIT ecosystem about uh, what was going on in the startup space, a lot of them were complaining about um, all of the startups that were coming out of places like MIT. And this is the late 90s. And their lack of ability to access uh, those direct investments. Sure, they could invest through a venture capital fund, but those were financial investments and there was really no transparency uh, in, into the underlying investments. And I, and I have a couple of friends at MIT that were starting companies, so I thought to myself, well, it looks like you've got a marketplace here of like-minded people, a one a set of people looking to start a company uh, and others uh, looking to invest in them. And so Hub was born in, uh, in late 1999 and 2000, um, another Sloan alum had a very similar idea, and we were put together, and Charlie Cameron and I uh, started Hub in um, April of 2000 with uh, two company presentations and uh, four angel investors, and uh, Hub, as we know it, was born. <laughs> well, it's good to hear that, that some of us have some modest beginnings here for, uh, for those of us that are a little newer to this. Um, <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about your experience at Hub, founding Hub, sort of its progression? Yep, yep, for sure. So uh, Hub started like uh, many other angel groups in that a few people got together and decided to pool their knowledge and their funds to, to look at companies. We found out very quickly that we wanted to put more structure around our, our angel group. We were putting a lot of time and effort into it. We were producing, you know, 50-page due diligence reports on on these companies and recommending investments. And so we, we really felt like the best path for us was to uh, form a structured fund. And we did that in 2001. We're currently investing Hub Fund 5. And that's really turned out to be an excellent mechanism for us. It's, it's a way to ensure the longevity of the group. We charge a small management fee, which is not unlike any annual fee that a network might uh, charge its members, but we do charge a carry off of the profit. And, and this has worked out well for us in that, um, you know, the early days of the venture capital world were really focused on the carry rather than the management fee. And, and because our funds are relatively small, uh, typically less than $6 million, 
then the management fee really doesn't do much more than cover my phone or my car. And it's really the carry that motivates us, and, and that's really a good way to structure uh, a group. And there are also benefits to the members. Um, they instantly buy into a portfolio of companies. We're all invested in the same companies. Uh, we have money in good times and bad, and we can reserve uh, money to follow, uh, which is an important investment strategy for us. So I think all in all, it's, it's, a, it's a good mechanism for, for both the management and for the, the underlying members of, uh, of our fund. Got it. So you've got the core fund, and then do you allow the angels in the group to sidecar onto individual inv- investments? They do, they do, but they don't run that money through the fund, as it were. They make the, those checks out uh, directly to the company, but they do ride on the coattails of of the terms we've negotiated and the ongoing governance that we have in the company. So it's a good way to buy into uh, a little piece of every company and and as you wish, load up on one or more. And and I would say that on average, each of our members co-invest in one or two of the portfolio companies. We have a couple of family offices in our group who uh, co-invest in every single one just because they want to have greater exposure to those companies. Got it. And, uh, you know, we've been fortunate here on the program to have uh, both John Houston and Christopher Mirabile on the program. Um, I know that you're a chair emeritus, of course, of the ACA. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that story, how you got involved and uh, ultimately became became a chairman. Yeah, for sure. So, I've been very active in the uh, in the New England region. We have a, a unique ecosystem that encourages us to get together and share and syndicate deals more than it does to encourage us to compete. And so, a few of us: uh, Christopher Mirabile, Ham Lord, who is uh, Christopher's partner at Launchpad, Gene Hammond, who's uh, an Uber angel here in the uh, local ecosystem, and James Geschweiler the initial chairman of the Angel Capital Association. So the the core of us have really tried to increase the number of angels in our ecosystem and the quality of angel investing. And so uh, we've organized a series of syndication meetings. We have two every year where all of the New England angel groups come and and participate in, in those events. And we have a couple of education events during the year where we encourage people contemplating becoming an angel to, to come in and learn from those that have been doing it for a while. And, and I think largely because of the activities that we've been doing in New England, I was tapped to, to join the ACA board about uh, seven years ago, played an active role in the syndication committee, and ultimately became the uh, number two seat next to a very good uh, colleague that um, uh, runs uh, an angel group in Pennsylvania, uh, Catherine Mott, and uh, the way that things work in the ACA, if you're the deputy chair uh, for, for two years, you become the chair, and, and I uh, was able to take on that responsibility actually for three years up until last year when Christopher took it over. And I think the ACA is a, a great organization. It's doing the important work of bringing people that are typically more individual investors together rather than not. And as you can see in, in many of the public policy activities that uh, are, are facing us now, we really need to have a, a louder voice. We've, we've been a very private set of uh, investors and a very private asset class. But uh, if you look at it compared to the venture capital community, for example, it's, it's been largely on par 
um, up until recently, and, and we're talking on the order of $25 billion, but we've really never had uh, any type of lobbying activity in, uh, in D.C. up until uh, uh, I became the chair. Right, right. And there's tremendous amounts of activity in sort of the public policy arena for, for angels right now. So I think it's an opportune time to be discussing this. Can we start off by talking a little bit about why public policy issues are such an important consideration for angels? Yeah, you know, angels, have, as, I, as I mentioned, have really been um, quiet and private. Um, there are no intermediaries, there are no brokers. You know, up until the ACA started cranking up our activities, there have been no sort of events, and we've been very low on the radar screen and and one of the reasons for that is that we really have not had any fraud in our space and I attribute that to to people making direct investments into other people um, and and so we've got this sort of lack of history of of things that would bring notoriety to us unfortunately there are some some changes in the public policy space the, many of which are are well intentioned but not necessarily uh, appropriately executed. And those are the things that, that we've been focusing on. And we've done a good job of cranking up our activities. We have a grassroots public policy committee that uh, one of my colleagues runs, and, and we essentially have mapped out all of the members of Congress and uh, what committees they're on that have an impact on on what's being legislated or regulated in the angel space. And we ask people in those states to, to reach out and educate their, uh, their particular members of Congress. Uh, I'm in D.C., as is the executive director, Marianne Hudson, basically once a quarter. Uh, we've hired a very professional lobbyist group, ERIS, uh, E-R-I-S, and they've helped us uh, gain a lot of connections with, with people that are important positions. And um, interestingly enough, both uh, members of Congress and members of the SEC have been very open and willing to, to meet with us and listen to us and speak at our events. So I think we've, we've done a good job of, uh, of, of increasing the level of, of, uh, of knowledge about angel investing in Washington, D.C. David, from more of a 30,000-foot view, is there a way that you structure out or frame out the different categories of issues within the, the public policy uh, spectrum? Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously have prioritized uh, a set of issues that we think are uh, short-term, critically important. We've also got a list of what I would call existential threats to angel investing that are a little bit longer term, but we're, we're obviously spending most of our time on the, the key issues that are facing uh, angels today. And they're ones that um, people probably know a little bit about, but I'd be happy to talk in some depth about each. Great. And so what are some of the those top priorities for the ACA? So let me pick out three. Um, one is the capital gains exemption for small business investments is something that, that our group has taken advantage of. Another constitutes a couple of issues around the JOBS Act. Um, and the last and, and perhaps one of the bigger threats is the accredited investor definition. So let me start at the top. We all you know, want to make sure that we try to minimize the amount of taxes that we pay as, as angel investors. The more money in our wallets, the more we tend to put into startup companies. And there is a qualified small business um, tax benefit yep. for any 
any investor who invests in a company, it's, it's a C corporation, uh, holds that equity for five years. Uh, and then if that company has an exit, there's a 100% capital gains exemption uh, from that exit. It's called Section 1202, uh, and it's part of the, uh, the American Taxpayer Relief Act. And uh, it's uh, the percentage of um, uh, exemption has changed off and on throughout the last five or six years. Uh, it did just go through the tax extenders, and so for 2015 and beyond, it's a 100% exemption and um, it does require that, that, uh, that you hold that investment for five years. Uh, and there is uh, an important precedent to set in your term sheet or, or otherwise up front such that when you get to the point of, of uh, seeking the exemption, you've got a little bit of paperwork that backs up that the company is indeed um, subject to uh, QSBS treatment. Is that... Uh, is that just related to it being a C-Corp, or, or what sort of other language needs to be there to sort of affirm the fact that it was QSBS at the time of investment? Yeah, the, the C-Corp is the, is the primary issue, uh, as is the holding period. Now, we've, we've been lobbying that, um, uh, that uh, Section 1202 be tweaked in the future um, uh, in, in two ways. One, to have the investment holding period be reduced from five years to two or three. And the other is to allow um, LLCs uh, to, to participate in that. I, I suspect that we might get the, uh, the, the number of holding years um, reduced, but uh, I'm, I'm less optimistic about the LLCs because you're getting the, the, the pass-through losses with an LLC early in the company's life, and to then get the benefit on the back end is maybe trying to get your cake and eat it too. <laughs> yeah. So I haven't hit my five-year holding period yet, but uh, I think when Dave Burkus was on the program, he said that if you invest via convertible, then the clock starts when the conversion occurs as opposed to... Uh, when the initial investment occurs, is that yeah, still the case? Yeah. yeah, unfortunately, it's got to be in a class of stock that qualifies, and and the debt is not a class of stock. So uh, that's one important thing. As a as a structured fund, though, um, I, I, there is an interesting pass through to funds. So uh, whether or not it's an individual investment or one done through a fund, it still qualifies as QSBS. And, and we've taken advantage of this several times in the last couple of years. And uh, there's nothing better than getting uh, a little bit of tax exemption from a big hit. Sure. Great. Anything else on capital gains or would you like to no, talk uh, a little more about sort of, you know, one, one that hits the wallet, uh, I would say, um, the the Jobs Act has a couple of, of items that are, are in in some ways good and bad. So general solicitation general solicitation is one important aspect of the Jobs Act, um, but the definitions haven't been particularly clear about what does constitute general solicitation. So for example, the Halos Act, which uh, has uh, has made it through uh, uh, the House and is going to the Senate basically uh, exempts a, um, uh, a business plan contest um, and other similar types of, uh, of venues as exempt from general solicitation. So general solicitation basically means uh, an entrepreneur can shout from the rooftops, uh, tweet, go online, have a radio show, um, or take an advertisement out 
about their um, about raising capital for their company. But then they are then subject to a particularly special type of filing. They need to verify the accreditation of investors, and a lot of angels don't want to kind of go through that that uh, rigmarole. Um, and technically, when the general solicitation um, uh, of the Jobs Act came out. Uh, a business plan contest or demo day would have been considered general solicitation because there were uh, un- likely unaccredited people in the crowd. And the HALOS Act sort of takes that off the table. You know, business plan contests and demo days are things that we as angels have been doing for decades. That's one of the ways that we generate deal flow. That's one of the ways that we support the ecosystem by being judges and, and giving feedback and, and mentors. So, uh, in pulling that off the table, it, it sort of sort of takes a little bit of a uh, of a sharp edge off of general solicitation, uh, and then the uh, in, in accompanying that the verification of accreditation status. One of the things that the ACA has established is something called the existing angel group, which means that by virtue of of your membership in existing angel group, you are meeting the requirements of verification. So you don't have to submit. A letter from your accountant or your broker or another mechanism for establishing your verification. If you're a member of of an EAG and all organizations uh, that belong to the ACA have the opportunity to to gain that level of certification through the ACA, then you don't have to to worry about uh, tax returns and and letters from accountants or brokers. Got it. You're too good, David. You're taking taking a bunch of my later questions here. <laughs> so right, well, let me let me steal one more from you then. All right. The uh, accredited investor definition is an interesting topic in that under Dodd-Frank the SEC must review the accredited investor definition every 4 years. And interestingly enough, 2014 was that year and that year came and went as did 2015. So the SEC's really been a bit tardy on commenting on on what should happen to the accredited investor definition. And for those who don't know, there are financial thresholds that determine whether or not you're accredited. There's an income threshold of 200k or 300, including your spouse, or a 1 million net worth um, threshold. That's excluding the value of your primary residence, but not any other residences. So those levels of wealth and income have been the measures of accreditation for 30 years. And when this was raised in 2014, some members of the SEC, in uh, sort of a, a stroke of uh, you know, a blindness, suggested that maybe those levels, those thresholds should be increased by uh, the consumer price index or some other metric inflation since the beginning of time and that would have effectively doubled both of them and would have uh, made about 60% of angels in the United States including me unaccredited and so we we spent a huge amount of time lobbying the SEC and getting members of Congress to do that as well basically making the point that of the 400,000 people that are angel investors in the United States the last thing you want to do is cut that number in half because yeah. They're starting small companies or facilitating the start of small companies. And if you look at the labor statistics, small companies have basically provided uh, over 90% of the net new jobs in our economy over the last 20 years. So we're a job creator. And the discussion went from 
uh, gosh, don't increase it to let's actually expand it. And so uh, what the SEC is now talking about is keeping the levels of wealth and income roughly the same, although in the future those might go up uh, uh, according to the CPI, but adding a measure of sophistication. So, for example, if you have an advanced degree or have served on the board of a private company or some other set of measures of sophistication that you could become accredited even if you don't meet the thresholds of wealth and income. And we think that that's an enlightened view uh, and we're hoping that that uh, regulation comes down the pipe soon in, uh, in the near future. Yeah, it would be quite a shock to the ecosystem if they have the number of total angels putting money into deals with one of these, these updates to the accreditation definition. So, and and it, just, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, you know, I think the SEC is worried about fraud. And as I mentioned on the outset, one of the the interesting aspects of the angel ecosystem is that there really is a lack of fraud, and so there's no reason to, to you know, make an issue out of something that doesn't exist. And and I think we've done a reasonably good job of convincing the SEC that uh, uh, that fraud is is not likely to to come into our industry, uh, you know, at least in in the near future. But there certainly are some some other issues like unaccredited crowdfunding that pose some potential existential threats to us, I, I believe. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company, or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Got it. So that was like the third priority issue uh, having to do with accreditation and the accredited investor definition. Um, The first one you talked about was capital gains, which uh, has to do with the PATH Act. And the second one you talked about was sort of this general solicitation, which is uh, you mentioned it's the HALOS Act or the Demo Day Bill. Um, can we go a little deeper on that? So what exactly does that allow? Because, you know, I go to some demo days and the startups pitch and they say, here's how much I'm raising. Um, here's the valuation. 
And then I go to other demo days where they don't speak a word of it uh, because I think they're worried about soliciting. You know, what does it stipulate and and what's now allowed as of the, the bill passing on May 2nd? Well, uh, I think that when the SEC adopts a regulation and puts penalties behind it, then people, particularly lawyers that work with with schools and uh, incubators and accelerators, want to be very cautious not to put a company in jeopardy and or any of the angels participating. And so many of the demo days have stipulated to those that are presenting that they should not consider this a solicitation event. They should not put um, terms uh, and some have even cautioned not to put financials up because they suggest the company sh- will need capital in the future, which is mind-boggling because they all do by definition. It's 100% necessary. So uh, I think people have or appropriately been cautious. Uh, now, the HALOS Act uh, really does a good job of defining demo days um, and other uh, business plan contests as not focused entirely on fundraising. And uh, even though uh, the HALOS Act has gone through uh, the House, uh, there still is another step for it to go through the Senate before it gets passed. So we're, we're not out of the woods yet, so I would still encourage those who are organizing demo days and business plan contests to, to uh, be cautious, not treat them as a solicitation event, uh, and have the companies uh, be very careful about uh, soliciting the audience. And obviously, if you excite an audience about what the product is and the size of that marketplace and the quality of the, of the management team, uh, and there are accredited investors in the audience, then they should feel comfortable, as they always do, in approaching the company afterwards to follow up. And then, then it can maintain its the private aspect of the solicitation rather than a general solicitation. Right. Yeah, recently I was noticing one of the more vocal investors out west was uh, using Periscope to stream a demo day, a live demo day. And while it was nice to be able to view it, I was also... A little nervous for him and for the demo day itself that he's he's streaming this out and and making it more of a uh, a general public event as opposed to you know more of a private demo day with investors. Really specific and relevant info for angel investors covered in part one with David. Tomorrow in part two of the interview, we will cover questions including. Recently, I was a little uncomfortable when I noticed an investor that was live streaming a demo day via Periscope, where startups were discussing their fundraise details. Would this be at risk of being considered a general solicitation? Are there any other public policy issues related to the top three priorities for the ACA that we should touch on? Who within the ecosystem is taking action on public policy issues for angels? Are there any other efforts on both the regulatory and or legislative side? Can you walk us through the actions and or processes that you execute to improve the public policy situation? What, in your estimation, are the biggest risks to the fundraising environment regarding today's topic? What can individual investors do related to public policy to support and improve the fundraising environment? And finally, we'll wrap up with David's final thoughts on today's topic.
All that and more in part two of the discussion with Chairman Emeritus of the ACA and leader of Hub Angels, David Verrill. Until then, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you again soon. <laughs>